0: Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream.
1: Because we don't charge any interest, we don't charge any fees. What we're basically counting on is that by being such a consumer-friendly product, The customer wants to get access to it to keep on using it, so they'll pay us back.
0: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, By All Means. Perhaps you've noticed when you hit the checkout button on your online purchases, there's often an option to buy now, pay later. It's reverse layaway. You get the goods now, and you pay them off in four to six interest-free installments. No fees, no need for credit. Young consumers love it. And so Buy Now, Pay Later is being embraced by more and more retailers from small indie shops to the big direct-to-consumer brands like Peloton, Warby Parker. Even Nordstrom offers a Buy Now, Pay Later option. The pandemic only accelerated adoption rates and analysts project Buy Now, Pay Later solutions could rack up as much as $680 billion in transaction volume worldwide by 2025. There are several big players in the field like Afterpay and Affirm now valued at $24 billion after going public in January. But that hasn't deterred Sezzle, a Minneapolis-based, buy now, pay later platform that went public on the Australian Securities Exchange in 2019 and continues to gain traction in the US. Founder Charlie Ewakim didn't set out to create a payment platform. His is a winding founder's tale that includes many startup signatures, sleeping on a couch, a fallout with a co-founder, a failure that eventually led to the big idea. He grew up in the Twin Cities, one of six kids in a solid middle-class family where entrepreneurship wasn't on anyone's radar. After college, Charlie pursued a master's degree in mechanical engineering. But he had an itch to start something. His brother-in-law got him an interview at a company that made parking software. And while it wasn't a dream job, it set him on his entrepreneurial journey.
1: This is actually important to this, uh, I think impactful to my story. Um, the company, it wasn't like a high bars company. You know, it wasn't like pushing me hard. I had been like, I, I'd always thought of myself as a high performer in college and stuff and I always wanted to do a great job. And then when I entered the workforce, as was in my 20s, I was enjoying going out, having fun. And. The company itself, like I would get high fived and stuff, you know, like getting things done. But I never thought that I was doing an awesome job. You know, it Mm. wasn't like, wow, I really kicked butt and worked my tail off this week to get that project done. And what really when it really popped out to me is after seven years in that job, I worked my way up in the company. And then I wanted to expand my horizons. I'd always thought entrepreneurially. So when I was at that job, I was thinking about starting business ideas. I didn't know anyone that had started a company. Didn't really know where to go or what to do um, to to actually launch products. I was actually like tinkering and building stuff, but I didn't know how to launch them.
0: What kind of stuff? What were you tinkering with?
1: Like like, like Dropbox. Like I was building like a Dropbox system. I mean, this is back in like the 2000s, you know, like where you could basically load pictures into a local file folder and upload it to the cloud. You could share it, download it elsewhere. So I was already doing some of that kind of stuff, but I didn't know how to monetize or, Mm or launch a company. You know, like so I was tinkering and having a lot of fun doing it but I didn't know how to get it anywhere. Hmm. And um, so that, that was kind of in the background. Like I had this entrepreneurial mindset, but no one in my like realm was an entrepreneur. Right, all, you know? right. And my cousin and I had talked a lot at that age. We were both in our 20s, both talking about stuff. And then when I went to business school or well, when I started interviewing for business schools, I had expectations that I would get in some, business, some like top tier business schools because I'd done well in school and all that. And when I started interviewing at these schools, I sucked at interviewing <laughs> because they were asking, like, you know, what were you proud of? Like, what did you accomplish in your job? And I remember thinking, I, like, I had to make it up, which kind of sucked. It really kind of sucked because I was like, I, it wasn't like I was proud of it. I mean, I, I think the company was happy with my work because I was getting promoted. Yeah. But I wasn't proud of it. Hmm. And I think that was always, that's been like in the back of my mind ever since. Like, that's, I think, played a big part in my future ever since that point. That I remember not being proud of it. I mean you're working all day at your job. I mean, at the end, you're spending a lot of your life doing this. Don't you want to be proud of what you're working on? But but are you
0: does that just mean that you're really hard on yourself? Or or was it just mundane kind of work?
1: No, I think it was I was it was not as challenging as it could have been.
0: Okay. So
1: Yeah, I, I really think that was part of it. I mean, the company was doing well. We we were successful. That's part of it. Like the company was doing well, right spots, good people at the company. Um, But it was more like a nine to five type job, and you know, not not as challenging, not not as challenging.
0: And and it sounds like that sort of helped you realize that you wanted something more that you wanted to be fulfilled by your work.
1: Absolutely, you weren't just that, that for really a stuck. That really stuck in my mind. Maybe it's because I was older at that point too, like not in my 20s, and you know, going on the weekends and having fun all the time as for as much. Um, and I wanted to actually do something fulfilling. And I think that definitely was in the back of my head before starting the first company.
0: So did you end up going to business school?
1: Yeah. So I I went to business school. I I got into the University of Minnesota Carlson School, my Mm -hmm. alma mater, um, and I loved every minute of it. It was awesome.
0: And were you there, in your mind, were you there to figure out how to start a company?
1: No. Okay. Actually, I went there. I went there to enter into the finance industry. Like Ah. I was doing a career search. I wanted to get into like finance and like fund management and investing. Because I did like that side of business, like the idea of investing in companies. And then I remember starting in the into business school and taking a lot of finance classes, and I started to get bored because a lot of them no knock on finance people out there, but a lot of them to me were like just it was similar. It was like, and it was also, I think the other thing was it was like black and white, it was known. Like if you, there were known answers, known solutions. And then once you kind of mastered some of it, it wasn't as challenging. Sort of like engineering had been for me in my past. And then I started to get into marketing classes and strategy classes. And I remember the consumer behavior classes I really loved Mm -hmm. because it was, it was like shades of gray. Like you could do things better, but it's not perfection. It's like taking this consumer behavior data and understanding of how consumers operate and, through that data, you can make better decisions. And if you keep on stringing really good decisions together, then you can create something special. And I really thought that was really cool. And I I started to gravitate more towards marketing and consumer behavior.
0: And so at that point, do you feel like there was part of you that was sort of looking for an opportunity? Were you looking for the thing, the problem to solve, the company to start?
1: Not necessarily. So what was happening was... I was, again, still talking with my cousin about entrepreneurship. It was 2008 to 2010. So right when I entered business school, the world started to collapse, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the global financial crisis. And I remember during business school, I could hardly get an internship.
0: Hmm.
1: It was almost impossible to get an internship. And the internship that I did get was not even a desirable one. I didn't want to be there. They were actually just trying to leverage my computer science background to You know, be a a, a data jockey essentially at their company to help them with some Excel spreadsheet stuff, and I was like, well, this isn't what I went to business school for. I remember thinking that, and and then I think my conversations with my cousin started to accelerate, and we started to talk more and more about building a company, especially given the scenario. Mm -hmm. And then you know, kind of what was popping up, you know, inspiration idea at the time was when I was going to Carlson School, I was parking in a parking lot on the West Bank where you had to park. And take a dollar bills out of your wallet, wrap them up, and put them into an envelope, and write your license plate on it.
0: Oh, I hate that. I can't believe it. Some of those still exist in the Twin Cities. I know.
1: It's they ridiculous. Still <laughs> they still exist. They still exist. That's actually even said that more, more of a sad part. But yeah. they, some of them still exist. But I remember thinking about it. I was like, well, my background's parking. I know how to write parking like rate engines and calculators. And I know how this industry works. And so I called my cousin, and I was like, hey, Bob, I think I got an idea here. This is like a space maybe we could launch a company into because we could leverage my background into it. There's tons of opportunity because they're behind technologically in parking. Um, even though I was at a parking technology company, I think they, they saw a lot of work room to, go, to grow. And that was really when we started to talk about building Passport, which it became Passport. Uh, we did a lot of things wrong at the start, but we started to talk about it and we started to lay the foundation for it. And so when I was going through my second year of business school, as like my part time job i started to lay the foundation started to write software for the for the business started to you know basically file papers um, and that's where the entrepreneurship side started to to kick in
0: and what was passport was it just an automated system for parking
1: well what it what it became eventually was we became a mobile payments company but that's not where it started okay where it started was we thought we could create this unique set of devices that could reinvent a parking lot or like a parking situation. Mm-hmm. Basically you go with like credit card in, credit, and these exist now by the way, like credit card in credit card out using your credit card as your identifier mm-hmm. at, at parking installations to bring technology into the hardware, into the entire system, uh, surveillance systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so we started to build the hardware for that and write the software for it. And we started to run out of money. Well, this is after after business school. We started to run out of money and just start to realize the issues with building hardware. Mm-hmm. Super slow. If you fail at doing the first design, you've got months and months to build the next design. takes forever. And then we were running out of money after we started that company and we we're thinking, you know, what do we do here? And we said, well, the safest and easiest thing for us to get into and cheapest, mobile payments. Because all you have to do for mobile payments was put up signage and stickers, and create a mobile app. Okay. And that's cheap. And that's cheap. So that's that's when we evolved. It was probably like a year into the business, spending way too much time and capital and energy towards hardware. We said we've got to pivot, and that's when we pivoted to mobile payments.
0: And was it successful? Did that business make money?
1: Oh, yeah. We eventually built a great success, but it took a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, again, we had no mentors towards entrepreneurship. He didn't, I didn't, we were learning everything the hard way, you know, basically like riding on the bike with no one teaching you how to do it. We were mm-hmm. falling a lot, getting hurt quite, quite often. Um, it took a lot of time. When we first started the business, everyone in the parking industry, we started to get to know people in the parking industry. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought like, we are getting a lot of advice, like, oh, Charlie, Bob, that's a, you guys are heading down the wrong path. That's a bad idea. There are these other companies, Park Mobile and Pay By Phone. They've been here for four years. You don't stand a chance. Oh, and then there's other company called QuickPay. It was started by Barney Pal, who is the founder of Bing. He's gonna, they're gonna, gonna totally smoke you. You don't have a chance in this in this industry. And so here's what I, what I learned from that: if you, you can start, you can start small. And and where you start is you find your first customer. And it was ParkSize. I I still remember back in the passport, Park Select out of Wilmington. They they gave us a chance, and we installed our software with them. And then it was just make it work. Make it work great. Listen to that customer. When they have issues, fix them. When they have ideas for making it better, do them and just rinse and repeat. And it's really just keep on walking forward. And that's what we did. So we started at the bottom. No one thought we, really, no one thought we had a chance. And what we did was we were super cheap. I mean, I used to drive a 1993 Honda Civic. It was a little I called it the sipper, little <laughs> junky car. I used to live in the office. Our office was a Rambler in Charlotte. We, I moved on to Charlotte, North Carolina for that. Oh, and we were we were probably spending maybe like five to ten thousand dollars a month to mm-hmm. run the business. You know, like super cheap, and that's like life's like my life too. Like spending nothing, you know. And then it was just call, talk to potential customers, leverage our first customer and the success there, and keep on gaining steam. And that's what we
0: did. I, I think what you just described, and I mean, as we know, there are, you know, there are garages and basements and couches and so many entrepreneurs pass. I think that's one of the things that's a little scary and off-putting, you know, to people who listen and maybe they have that idea, but they already have a mortgage or they have kids and they think, well, I, I'm not in a position to go do that. You have to be in your early twenties and put everything on the line. Is that the case?
1: I think it's it helps to mm-hmm. to to be single. And I have told people that like, I mean, I have my, I have my first kid now. I see how much work it is, you know, now that he's, you know, four months old tomorrow and it's a lot of work. And I always kind of tell people like your first company is, it is your baby in a way Mm -hmm. you got to spend so much time on it. And if you have the only way I'd recommend doing it, if you're in like a, a family situation is if your spouse or your family has some way of supporting the family outside of yourself, Because it is such a pull on you in terms of time, in terms of energy. And I was in this unique situation where I was single. And even though I was in my 30s, I was, you know, in in a 20 life situation, you know, in terms of not having a lot of attachments. And I did, I still had a lot of support from my family at the time that, you know, could help if I ever needed help. Um, So that's definitely true. I think there's a lot to that.
0: Okay, well, I guess better to know that going in. So I I know that you you had it was a bit of a roller coaster ride with passport, and you, and you did have some success. The ending, not not exactly what you had dreamed of.
1: Yeah, I mean, my cousin and I, we were always at odds. I mean, we were always I was I call it the bad marriage, bad divorce type scenario, and. It's not unusual. That's Mm -hmm. the thing I learned. Like once you've gone through something, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that through other stories. But once you've gone through like a a bad situation, you find out people come out of the woodwork a little bit and tell you like, oh, I've heard of a similar situation. So I found out it wasn't that unique that we need to have some sort of situation like that. But despite our bad marriage, we were able to progress. Like, you know, despite all the arguing, despite all the fighting and, and so on. We were able to keep on building this company and, and gaining success. But yeah, I eventually was pushed out of that company and it was very memorable. Yeah, I mean, I will never, it was December 4th, 2015. We'll never forget it. And, you know, sat down with one of our early venture capital members and he told me that I was basically out and I knew he was right. I knew there was no fighting it because I knew that I kind of figured what was happening.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and I came back home, I talked to my wife-to-be, Jen, and I was like, well, I'm out and I got to figure out what to do.
0: When we get back, Charlie starts thinking about his next startup. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. So Charlie just got kicked out of a company he co-founded. He's got to process that and pick up the pieces.
1: And I came back home, I talked to my wife-to-be, Jen, and I was like, well, I'm out and I got to figure out what to do. Wow.
0: Wow. So do do you and your cousin speak now? Not so much. Not so no. much. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. Um yeah. what did you before we talk about the the next thing, what would you say are your biggest takeaways from that time? Obviously you learned a lot about how to build a business. Did it make you think I don't ever want to have a partner again or just family or no, what, what are your takeaways? Not
1: not at all. Actually, the first thing I did was call like, one of my future co-founders. <laughs> I called Paul Paredes, who I went to business school with. And, you know, the one thing I did that did pop out to me while I called Paul, Paul and I worked on a lot of projects at school together. And we were in, you know, even though it's school, you know, you're going you to and your MBA. Even though it's school, it's still high pressure. That, I think, is the key. If you've ever worked with someone in, like, high-pressure situations and you know that you can gel, that's a good indicator for a co-founder. And I called Paul because I knew I was uh, like a tech co-founder and I knew he was an excellent business development mm-hmm. uh, type specialist, you know, co-founder now and now, but um, I thought he'd be a great pairing for my background and I always liked working with him and uh, we always got along at school. And so I reached out right away. And so I wasn't, you know, not, it wasn't not having a co-founder. Actually, I think you really need to have a lot of co-founders. You need to have a strong founding team to help you build that company. Um, I mean, big takeaways, just keep on pushing ahead. You know, I I always give the analogy of building a company, and I I say it's like mountain climbing. Like, know where the pinnacle is, know where you want to get, and just keep on marching ahead. Mm -hmm. And keep on picking your path with the ultimate goal that you got to get to the top. And that's what I learned is just keep, if you keep on marching ahead and keep on fighting and finding your way, you can do it.
0: And I suppose when it comes to co-founders, it's about finding the, the right balance, the right personalities. What did you what do you know about yourself and who you are and kind of what what traits you need to balance you out in a company?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think I don't love the BD side of the business. I actually do it a lot, um, but I know I know that I don't love that as much, which is why finding someone that really does enjoy the BD side for me was important. Um I like to stay in the, the strategy side of things and design. I like the technical side of things. Um, I'm a big dreamer and not organized, I think, in a lot of cases. So having someone that's really organized and diligent on that front and can keep the company more grounded, I, I would definitely give Paul tons of credit for a lot of the processes that we brought into the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've, we've been following a weekly process By the, uh, it's called EOS, Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurial Operating System. We've been following that from the start, and it's all his doing. Uh, Setting the mission around the company, all Paul's doing. Um, He's done a lot in terms of like found found, uh, foundational elements. Yep. Where I really like to focus on, how do we create a strategy to to win big? Like, Mm -hmm. but that's you can't just do that all day. So like I think I know that. Yeah, you need both. You need both. So So if you you, you can find people that compliment, it's a great thing.
0: When you uh, left Passport uh, fairly abruptly, did you leave with money in the bank? Did you leave with other ideas? What happened?
1: Well, other ideas for sure, but no money in the bank. Actually, Passport was starting to reach a stage where, like, as a founder, you probably started to feel a little more comfortable. I mean, that was, like, the tough part. We were, we were finally starting to reach a stage where I was like, I had an apartment that wasn't part of the office, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> a separate building where you slept.
1: <laughs> yeah, I sold the zipper, had a nicer car. Um, you know, it's so like a, a little little things like that. We were starting to get to that sort of stage of company, but not financially sound at all. I mean, I had, I had shares in the company, but it's a private company. And then got pushed out of that company and, you know, as as already mentioned, and just ideas. So just in some of the ideas, once you're kind of in the game, I've heard people say this, like once you're in the game of like technology and entrepreneurship and building things, you do get other ideas. Mm. You know, like, oh, what about this? What about that? And I think some of the foundation like that that I learned at Passport helps start Sezzle. We started, again, we started the, by the way, we started the wrong path at Sezzle too, just like we started at Passport. And some of those ideas came from Passport. Um, one of them, when we started the company, we started the idea that, Young people are paying with debit in higher volumes than ever before mm-hmm. in the U.S. And when I was at Passport, a lot of young people at a younger company, and I was get I got introduced to Venmo, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting, really cool. You can sign into your bank account, make a payment. That's super cool." Right. I knew enough about payments because I was in the payments industry to know that ACH was extremely cheap, extremely ACH? cheap profit. What is yeah, that? Yeah, ACH. So like when you send money from uh, yourself to someone else through like PayPal or Venmo, mm-hmm. it goes from bank to bank. Zelle is another example. It goes directly directly from your bank account to their bank account, and that's over something called the Automated Clearing House, okay. ACH, and that costs the banks. I don't even know how many decimals, but it's like point zero 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 five cents. Okay. a process, it's super cheap. So they'll sell it to you for a few pennies, or or less, and that If we could bring that to retail, the, the original idea was if we could bring that to the retail checkout, we could save retailers a ton of money. And the data point was telling us that we could do it was that young people were paying with debit. They were, they were preferring to pay with debit. ACH is debit. It's paying someone directly and not taking any credit. So we, we launched with that idea at CESL because of some things, I think, leveraging some things I learned at Passport.
0: But, but I'm I'm still trying to understand, what were you offering that wasn't already in the marketplace? Where, where would they have been using the what was originally Sezzle?
1: Well, a good example of why they, why they might want to use it, I mean, actually, I, I know the retailers want this. There was something called MCX, which was launched. It never got off the ground, really. But a lot of the retailers, like the Walmarts of the world, the Targets of the world, they don't love paying card processing rates. To process a, a, a debit card or a credit card, like a blended average rate, is between 2 to 3% for a retailer. Okay. And so when they're selling something for $100 and it costs them 2 dollars 5 to sell it, they can't stand it. And so what we were trying to pitch was we could process for pennies. Let's split the difference with both the consumer and the retailer and share. So basically give the consumer some rewards for using our system. Give the retailer a discounted processing. And we were, our hope was that we can get retailers on board because they could save money.
0: And was was that going to be a, like an alternate credit card or an electronic transaction?
1: Electronic. So basically okay. with like a PayPal. Got Call it like a Venmo for checkout. But that's what we were kind of thinking of, it, like Venmo for checkout.
0: OK, but instead of going just person to person, it would be retailer to consumer or consumer yeah, to Yeah,
1: consumer to retailer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, so why didn't that work?
1: Well, so we put the team together in 2016, and we launched in 2017 in February, and we were able to get some retailers on board. We had like a a dozen retailers that wanted to try it out, and what happened was we just couldn't get consumers to get on board.
0: Hmm.
1: We couldn't get prominent placement from the retailers to tell the consumer about it, and then we were far enough down the funnel and the checkout experience that I think decisions had already been made. Our rewards were just not enough. I mean, I, what I've learned since is rewards are not a good core to a business. They're a good bolt on later on in terms of like imp- improvements. You can mm-hmm. use rewards for improvements. We're using it as like the core of the business. And then what was happening was after we launched, the next merchant would ask, Well, how's it going with your current merchants? <laughs> and when it's really going poorly, you don't have, you have nowhere to go.
0: Yeah. We
1: had nowhere to go. We were like, we've got nothing like this is not a good story at this point. And that's when we that's when we started to realize we had to pivot.
0: So to, to get the company set up and off the ground in the first place, was that your own investment? Did you how did you get it started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it started with like twenty five thousand dollars. OK, uh, I, I put like twenty five thousand dollars in the company to start or something like that. You know, not, not a ton. Did you build started- it? Yeah, I mean, I filed the paperwork at the outset. You know, got the initial website up. You know, bought the sizzle domain, which was funny because it was uh, fifteen hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars, and I negotiated them down to fifteen hundred dollars. So like, th- there was, you know, that that sort of like initial frame, getting the branding done. How
0: would you like, come up with the name?
1: Sell and sizzle. Okay. Like, the combination, and then it was just memorable, and short. Mm-hmm. Like I remember people like you brought the name, people would remember it. Um, so that was kind of like the, the evolution of like what the $25,000 was used for. is just like just getting the group business off the ground mm-hmm. with branding, name, website. And then right away, it was just building a proof of concept and going out fundraising.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Started right away. And we were able to raise around almost $2 million that wow. first year.
0: Just on and And do you think that's because you had a, a bit of a proven track record from Passport? Or were you just super compelling? Or was it the name? What was it?
1: I think it was a little bit of the backer. It did help, you know, even though I, I started like almost every conversation. I'm very, I, I'd rather like you hear all the bad news from me kind of person. So like when we go out and fundraise, I'm like, you know, we're built, we built this business, yada, yada, yada. Here's what we're doing. And by the way, you know, I, I had prior success, but I was pushed out of that company. Like that was like the shortcut <laughs> of like the entire story. Right. I'd rather you hear I was pushed out from that company for me. Uh, but we're going to build something great here. And uh, we did get some early backers. And actually one of them is still on our team at, at or is on our team now at Sezzle, uh, Lee Brading. He invested in my prior company at Passport uh, and Brian Hunt, another early investor in Passport. I got to know them at Passport. And then when I left Passport, I reached out to them right away and they were early backers. So after my check, we got a couple of early stage investors coming in and we just started to roll the momentum. You know, getting investors into your company at early stage, it's a lot about just creating momentum and just keep on running with it and trying to use any, every advantage you can. And another advantage we, we utilized was the Minnesota angel tax credit. Hmm.
0: That
1: How was a that fantastic, help? it, it helped a ton. You know, we, we, we would never lead with it, but what we would do is after the entire pitch, if we had someone that was really intrigued, we would say, Oh, and by the way, you get 25% of your investment back as a credit from Minnesota. If you want to invest. And I always kind of viewed it as like the domino tipper. Hmm. And it worked. I mean, it definitely helped. It definitely worked. Like, that was a, a nice incentive.
0: The fact that you were based, I mean, you were back in Minnesota when you were starting this?
1: Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we moved back to Minnesota in May of 2016.
0: Did you encounter any pushback? Like, why are you not doing this on the coast? You, you need to be closer to where the action is?
1: Tons. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of sad, kind of amazing. So I, I, we built the, the prior company Passport in Charlotte which is not actually, I would say it's worse for venture capital funding than Minneapolis. And it's really amazing. So when you go to raise early stage funding, it really doesn't matter like an angel stage. It doesn't matter as much because you're just seeking out private investors. I'd say where it does help a little bit is there are more people in San Francisco that make enough Mm -hmm. to become angel investors. Like There's like a certain accredited number of you have to have a certain income the coasts have more people that are at that level that can invest in your company. So there's a little bit of helping on the coast or getting angels, but where it really helps is getting your first fund fund to invent invest in you. The first fund, like the series A investor, they want to be like nearby. It's just, it's uncanny. They want to be nearby. Um, and there's also this like, arrogance of the coasts <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean there's definitely an arrogance of the coast. i can't tell you how many people would say like Charlie, can you build this company in minneapolis <laughs> and i and, you know of course you have to answer like you know we're we're finding great people but in the back of my head i'm like no all the smart people are in san francisco right like it's just it seems like such a ridiculous question yeah you know, we have
0: end. wi-fi in minnesota we're doing okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> we do have a bunch of Fortune 500s. Maybe you've heard some of. It. Yeah. So, uh, it, I always kind of found that question ridiculous, but it came up a lot. We definitely heard it a lot.
0: And for you, was it just a matter of this is where you this is where you grew up? This is where your family is.
1: Yeah, I think you know I was when, I, when we were making the decision to go where to go. So, Jen, my wife, knows that I love the idea of being like a tech founder in, in San Francisco. I like loved that idea. So when we started the company in 2016. We went out i think it was like in january like right away we went out to san francisco spent a few weeks there i was talking to investors and then we were like looking at houses and like the base the starter house out there was a million dollars and i was like how can you live out here i mean i was really questioning it like how do people even live out here and i was like well i i can't see us living out here and making it so i don't know how we're going to hire people here um and then i was like the other option is minneapolis which is my hometown and I was like, we'd have a lot of support there. So I told my wife, like, let's go to Minneapolis. Because, you know, sadly, I was in Charlotte for five years. But because we were so heads down on our company, I barely got to know anyone in Charlotte mm-hmm. outside of the people in the company. So we're like, we didn't have much of a network in, in Charlotte. And I, even, I hate even calling it a network. I just call call them friends. Tons of friends and people I know in Minneapolis. And it helped. I'll give you an example like where it helped. So when we were first getting our, our first apartment, in 2016, this, I'm like the nightmare tenant, right? Or potential tenant. I come up and say, I'd love to rent your apartment. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, like, that's yeah. like the nightmare, right? Like, okay, entrepreneur, sure. Yeah.
0: I.E. Uh, no income. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, but the funny thing about that whole story was we were just chit-chatting with uh, the, the landlords and I found out they worked at Medtronic and I was like, hey, I know a couple of people at Medtronic. I was wondering if you knew them. Uh, Mark Sponholz and Ken Fayo. And they're like, we know both of them. She knew both of them. And I'm like, well, why don't you ask one of them about me as the character check to see if, what, what they think, you know? And boom, we got the apartment. And I, that's like those like little things that you nice. don't predict. Yeah. But by being in your like hometown where you have tons of friends and family... Like those things help.
0: Okay. So you you have this company, you've got investment dollars, you've got a great name, you've got a website, but you've got a product that isn't really catching fire. What did you do?
1: So first of all, it's really painful. When you launch a product that is sucking, (laughs) there may not be anything more painful because it's like tough to go into work. Um, You can start to feel it deteriorating. You know, you can see like the employee, like employee teammates, you know, mm-hmm. that we're all teammates. you see the teammates, the morale dropping sure, because things aren't working. Um, we were luckily, we were really miserly with our cash. You know, we raised 1.8 million or something like that, and we were only spending $50,000 a month. So we had a, we, had, we still had a ton of cash left. And that was great advice from some of our early investors to be miserly like that. Um, we were looking at things, testing various Iterations of our product. And then we couldn't get it off the ground. So we're like, okay, let's look at the hypothesis. Young people are paying with debit in higher volumes than ever before. You could look at it two ways. You could look at it as a preference, they want to pay with debit, or you could look at it as they can't get credit. Mm. We 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 ran with the idea that it was a preference. And we started to think maybe it's not a preference, maybe it's a lack of access to credit. So let's how do we flip the hypothesis? Well, you have to build a credit system and our early investors didn't love it because building a credit company is kind of difficult or can, can be difficult. Um, So we didn't have a lot of support from our big backers. A lot of our team was struggling with the idea of pivoting because I get it. You've been sold on an entirely different business model and different approach. Um, And so we, we had a lot of resistance just in general in, in in pivoting, but in the end we just, we, we had to change.
0: Right, it wasn't working.
1: Yeah, it wasn't working. So we looked around the ecosystem of what was working. We saw, we noticed a firm who just IPO'd actually at a thirty billion dollar valuation or something or somewhere on there. So a firm was out there. Okay, um, Larna, Uh We had Bread Future Pay, and then my wife noticed After Pay out in Australia. She was she actually noticed it a couple months earlier, like right when we launched our product. She noticed. And she, you know, she knows we're in payments. And so she's showing me payments, companies that she sees. And she noticed it on Instagram and she said, this is pretty interesting. And I mean, she caught my, it caught my attention right away too, when she showed it to me. And when we were looking at what to pivot to, we decided that that model was the one that we wanted to bring to the U.S. Because it was so consumer friendly. And it's basically what you see with our, it it, it is what you see today with our business. So, so So what is it? Yeah, it's, it's basically like reverse layaway. So you pay four payments over a very short duration. Uh, in Australia, they were doing it over eight weeks. We, we shortened it to six weeks here. Um, and basically using that short duration product uh, to make purchases. And it was free for the customer, no interest, no fees whatsoever. And it had virality aspects to it or network effects where customers would sign up. We get a merchant. Customers would sign up. Other merchants would see that merchant launch the product. They'd inquire with us because they're competitive with that company, or they're collaborative with the founder. They'd start to reach out to us. We get more merchants. That would bring on more consumers. More consumers would start shopping at both locations, and, and basically, it started to like we, we can see the virality aspects of it happening for Afterpay in Australia. We like that aspect of the business as well.
0: So does, doesn't that model require you to have a lot of cash on hand? I mean, you, I mean, basically, are you paying the retailer and, and then your customer is paying it back to you in installments?
1: Exactly. No, that's definitely and that's, that's why some of our early investors didn't love the pivot mm-hmm. because they knew that was a, a strain on the business and in many cases very difficult to manage for, for businesses, especially early stage businesses. So what, what helped us a bit, though, is the duration of our IE loan, the short-term layaway plan, it was very short. It was six weeks, so 25% at the time of purchase and then three automated payments after that. So if you look at it, like I always look at it like a teeter-totter, the middle of the teeter-totter is three weeks. So that's the duration of the loan It was mm-hmm. a three-week loan. So it's really not stretching yourself out too far in terms of lending. That was a mitigant to like the downside of having to lend out to consumers and, or to the merchant, essentially, and, and then and then pull it back from the consumer.
0: So to do this pivot, did you have to go raise a bunch more capital?
1: Well, so we had one point two million when we pivoted and it started to work, started to grow. And so we went to our early stage investors for a bridge round. We raised another five hundred thousand in late 2017 so we launched the product in august 2017 it started to take off we could see it we see the virality taking off i remember walking to work because i used to walk across lake calhoun to work and when i or across the top of it not across
0: you walk (laughs) on water charlie we know it (laughs) i was gonna say i hope it was like in january when it was frozen at (laughs) least
1: (laughs) so we walked along the north north side of the the lake and i remember looking down at slack our our slack channel and we had a slack channel for merchants that would sign up and we had three sign up within like five minutes and this is like in the first couple weeks and i called i called paul and i was like paul who are these merchants that you got signing up and he's like i don't know any of those names and i was like wow that is good if we've got merchants signing themselves up and we have no idea what's going on here that's good so we started to see the spirality happening. So what growth. was it
0: was it large merchants, small? Who who were they?
1: No, small. They were all small. So we started with Australian merchants. This is where we started. So they're Australian merchants that sell to the US. They had experience with Afterpay and, and Zip, these two companies in Australia that were doing similar, similar things. So they knew that the products had results in Australia. Paul was reaching out to those merchants, telling them about our launch in the United States. We we started to get these Australian merchants on board, and then their competitors and maybe some collaborators, like their their merchant friends, would would ask them about it, find out about it, and they started signing up. And that was really interesting. So we started to grow at a really rapid pace, much faster than we grew at Passport, much, much faster. And so I reached back out to Lee and Brian, some of the early investors and some others. Greg Greg McEwen is another early investor in the company. We reached out to all of them and started saying you know we're growing at a rapid rate um would you like to invest and the funny thing about some of those conversations would be i would send monthly updates to the investors and they saw all the the failures early on mm-hmm. and it was funny like the laughs we would have on those calls because many of them would joke around with me like they thought the only thing they'd get out of the company would be a a stocking cap with our logo on it you know <laughs> we, were, we were we were sucking but then when they saw the invest when they saw the investor updates turning. They trusted us because we were telling them about all the bad things. So when the good things started to happen, they are like, wow, this is turning. Right. This is interesting. They're not and just and so they, this and, up. Yeah. And so they, they backed us. They, they, we had another 500000 come into the company right before the end of the year, and that helped us get going.
0: Help me understand why this model was appealing to consumers. I mean, I, I get you're splitting up payments instead of putting it all out at once, but why, why would they prefer to use Sezzle than to just put it on a credit card?
1: It's, I think the key is budgeting. It really is. It's, it's, it sounded odd to me when I first heard it because I heard it out of Australia first, but it really is the certainty of knowing when the payments are coming out. So the customers want the purchasing power. They want purchasing power, but they don't, they, they almost don't trust themselves with the credit card.
0: Hmm.
1: So a lot, we found a lot of our customers, some of you know, some of them did have credit cards, but they just didn't want to use them. It was like their backup or emergency. So we had some customers that had a, a credit card as a backup. We had some customers that couldn't qualify. You know, 15% of our customer base right now is no file, no yeah. credit file at all. We have 50% that are under a credit score of 600, and that's a low credit score. I mean, and but, but the reason that that's happening is because these customers are typically young. 70% of our customers are young, under under the age of 35.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: typically younger. And that's why I like to call them prime to be, because they're young, which is thin file, no experience with credit. And because of that, they're not getting access to credit as well. So we had we have a group that can get a credit card, doesn't necessarily want to use it. We've got a group that is trouble getting access to a credit card and likes our product. So there's a little bit of a mix. Uh, as to why people like to use the product, but the key is it's easy to use and, and simple.
0: And are they making their payments? I mean, how, how often do you get saddled with you know people who default?
1: Yeah, they are making their payments. That's the that's the. So when we first started running this business in the U.S., that was the biggest doubt because we don't charge any interest, we don't charge any fees. What we're basically counting on is that by being such a consumer friendly product. The customer wants to get access to it to keep on using it. So they'll pay us back. And that's how it works. If you don't pay us back, the only downside is you can't use this us again.
0: Hmm.
1: That's it. Really? You don't, no you don't go after them? Nope. No collections. No selling of debt. No hit to credit with the base product. Like we, I'll talk, we, we, we've made some advances, but the original products, no hit to credit. So if you don't pay us back, you could walk away and there's no repercussions. The only repercussion is you can't use this again.
0: That's amazing. How do you make money?
1: So it's merchant funded. So, it, which is also kind of funny about our pivot, because our first business model was trying to reduce fees for merchants. <laughs> we, we, we found out that, that was, you know, it's funny. I, went, I remember talking to Paul about it when we were thinking about pivoting. And I was asking where does our cost savings fit into the grand scheme of like lists of importance. He was like, oh, it's like five, six, or seven, usually, on their list of important things. And I was like, well, what's number one? He's like, sales. They all want more sales. And so we, when we pivoted, we were hitting on number one. But the problem with that is our business model completely changed, and we also had to start charging merchants more for this instead of less. So we'd go to a merchant and say, you're currently paying around 3% for processing. If you pay us an extra 3%, We'll do the processing for you. But for that extra 3%, we'll drive an increase in sales. We'll increase conversions. We'll increase back basket sizes. And we'll take on the fraud and repayment risk. And that's the pitch. So we'd, we'd sell it for
0: 6%. And that went over well, generally?
1: Yeah, it went over well. It really went over well. We didn't, we, much, much better than our early product, quite frankly. That that was another sign that we went the right, the right path. So we, we pivoted in May of 2017. And I could just tell right away from Paul's conversations that it was working better Mm -hmm. because we started to get a better funnel of merchants that wanted to come onto the platform. So we could see it on that side, on the sales side. We didn't have a product launch yet, and we're starting to get people lining up to use it on the merchant side. And then once we launched, we started to see results. It got even easier. There, there has not been a ton of pushback on price.
0: So by twenty eighteen, you were doing well enough that you started thinking about going public, and going public. In Australia, which is not uh, a, a typical path for a Minnesota-based company.
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's a little bit there's a little bit to the story too. We, we were trying to fundraise a lot. So once we got past the that you know five hundred thousand dollar bridge round, we had to keep on funding the business, keep on growing it. So Paul and I were out fundraising, which is what early founders do. You just fundraise all the time. We were trying to get a Series A fundraising round. And we couldn't get investors past some of these questions, like the doubts about loss rates mm-hmm. and repayment, uh, the doubts of this like new business model. It just, it just so, seems so far out there. How could it work?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, at the same time, it's really unique. At the same time, I had a chance to get out of my prior company. And I got out of that company, and, and that gave the opportunity for me to basically take that and help fund our growth. So I became our A round investor, essentially, to keep on growing the company. And then once we got past that, we we're still fundraising to get to the next round. And it's funny, it became a detriment. You How think so? it'd be an asset yeah. that the founder would want to put a lot of money into the company to grow it. It became a oh, you couldn't raise money from anyone. Oh. So so we don't know if you can you can do it. Can you build it? It became like, a, I think, an additional doubt, which you think it'd be a support. Yeah, they're all in. But it became I think it actually became uh, additional doubt. If we got funding from a more traditional venture capital firm with our A round, it probably would have helped us. But so this kind of hurt us a little bit. And then at the same time, I was talking to an analyst that covered Afterpay in Australia. And he was telling me all about his name is Phil Chimpadale. And his dad actually used to work at 3M, which is kind of a funny story. So Hmm. we had like a Minnesota connection. He's out in Australia. And when we were talking, we talked for a couple hours the first time we talked. And he said, Charlie, have you ever thought about fundraising in Australia? Because I told him about some of the struggles of fundraising. He's like, have you ever thought about fundraising in Australia? Because the investors here totally get the business model. And that was one of our biggest problems, just the lack of trust of the business model, because it seems too good to be true. And he said, they also love the U.S. market. It's a huge market, typical Australian companies. What they're always selling is they build a company in Australia and then America is the dream. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring the product to the U S and make a bunch of money. He's like, you guys are already there, mm-hmm. which is unique. And so that was in the back of my mind. Paul and I were still at fundraising that summer. And then we, we started to explore it further. So in September, I think was the time frame. I went out to San Francisco. I met with some of these Australian investors Told them about our business, started to make some um, relationships, I would say, with with those groups. Then I went out again in November. I actually went out to Australia and did a roadshow, which I thought was amazing, by the way. It's so efficient. (laughs) You basically just like two days of just talking to investors all day. I was like, this is is awesome.
0: You like that side of it.
1: Yeah, this would take, to talk to like 20 investors, it would take you eight months doing it through venture capital. Mm -hmm. I did it in two days. And at the end of, at the end of the two days, I'd, I'd asked some of the investors, "Well, if we came out here to do an IPO and raise twenty million dollars, do you think it would float?" And they were like, "For sure, you would you would have success." We went back to the team, talked about it, and that's when we decided to go public in Australia. Totally unusual. Very unusual. Was it. It was, yeah. yeah. It would be investor base. Yeah. They, they wanted to back us.
0: Interesting. So so what does that mean for the company today? How has that impacted your trajectory or or who you are as a company based in Minnesota, public, publicly traded in Australia?
1: I think it's been a huge win for us. You know, if you gave me a scale out of 100, where do you rate this? It's a 99, hmm. being a public company in Australia. And it's it's a win on tons of levels. First of all. Access to capital is amazing. There's so much capital in the public markets. When you want to fundraise, people don't usually think about that with with public companies, but you can fundraise. You can do a new issuance of stock, and you can actually bring capital in the company really quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a need for capital, you can fundraise in a matter of days instead of a matter of months. Mm -hmm. Also, for the founders, for me and Paul, we we could actually start focusing on the business Mm -hmm. because of the efficiency that example of the efficiency of meeting 20 investors in two days that you should used to take eight months that opened up 80 to 90% of my schedule and Paul's schedule to start focusing on the business. We stopped flying to San Francisco and to New York where they, where where they didn't think that we could build the company. And instead we, we focused on building the company before us.
0: So So that was a big one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then also it helped us recruit because now you're a public equity. And I remember this at Passport, we would give everyone equity. Mm -hmm. We did it at at Passport, we did it at at Sezzle. So we're giving everyone equity at Passport, and I would see people on the other side of the table like, "Thanks for the ten thousand shares. I have no idea what this means." (laughs) Like you could just see them like, "What does that mean for me? I have no idea." And that company is still private, so what does it mean to them? You know, it's hard. It's hard to pitch that. But when you offer ten thousand shares in Sezzle, what happens next? You know, Bpo boop gets on Google. Well, this is worth something, right? And I can I I can actually see the value of this. So that helps a ton too. Okay. And then I think it also makes you grow up as a company. And I think you've seen that, like with the WeWorks and Ubers of the world, staying private for so long,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're like immature giants, and can't get their business straight until they get they go public eventually. Mm-hmm. So it makes you grow up. Um, and then also there's free free PR, which I love. The free PR is amazing. Like we, because because we're we're putting out quarterly results. Yeah, it creates a story every quarter. Yeah, which is completely amazing.
0: Total so. bait for reporters like me. That's in, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so okay, so you figured out the, the the money that you need. You figured out a, a product that works. What have you learned at this point as far as consumers and, and shopping today? And I know that the pandemic, as it has for a lot of businesses, has actually been quite good for you, right? Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, at first it was really scary because, you know, we were like a lot of companies, like what's going to happen to the company in the pandemic? I mean, you can go look at our share price and see what people thought might happen mm-hmm. to our to our company during a pandemic. It wasn't good. We dove. And we, we basically looked at it as like, okay, there's a storm coming. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's get ready for the, the hurricane. And what ended up happening was really quite the opposite. Things were actually okay for us. I think some of it is because stimulus, of course. I don't want to say that we did it all. Stimulus definitely helped. You know, great move by the government, helping with, with a lot of that fixing. Um, but what we also found was that customers don't spend unless they have line of sight to income. Because I'll explain what I mean by that. When we first came into the, the COVID period in March, when everyone was starting to get laid off in their jobs, we had a spike in hardship requests and we grant them all. You know, people that couldn't pay, can we please push out payments? Mm. So we recorded we recorded that, that level of hardship requests. It never got to over a hundred a day, but we had a peak. And then it dropped and went to nothing. And it stayed at nothing for the most part throughout the rest of the year. And- What ended up happening throughout throughout that year was people got off the unemployment assistance, like, you know, September timeframe, Mm -hmm. the checks stopped coming out, but the hardship requests didn't go up. And I always remember that thinking our users are using us wisely. They're not, when they, when they don't see line of sight to income, they're choosing not to purchase. And that's when I became assured that we're seen as a budgeting tool. The hardships request, it started at the start because my budgeting is messed up. My income streams are gone. I need help. But if you don't have a job, people don't purchase with us because they don't have that line of sight. So I think it really made me feel great about our our company in terms of repayment. And then also on the e-com side, because no no one was able to shop, e-com was boosted. We're 100% e-com at this point. Mm -hmm. So it definitely helped us. At the, at the outset.
0: Who, what, get, drop some names. Who are the retailers that Sezzle works with at this point?
1: It's funny. People would not know most of them. Really? Because we, yeah we start, we started with small companies. hmm So we were working with the, the ma and pa type boutiques of the world. You know, basically the, the one or two store shops or e-com only stores that are being created today, the direct-to-consumer type stores. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are the stores that typically make up our 27,000 active merchants, small merchants. So we're, we're heavily based with the SMBs. We do have some big names, though, now. I mean, we, we've started to move up in terms of midsize and you know, enterprise clients. Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, uh, Untucket, GameStop. Uh, we're doing a pilot with Target at the moment. So we are starting to basically get to the largest of the, the retailers at this point. But early, early on, and those twenty seven thousand retailers, you would have to know the space like you'd have to be like, let's say you're a, fi- you're a fisherman. You would know those stores if you're a fisherman. Mm-hmm. But you you know, if you're not, you wouldn't know. them. So it depends.
0: This whole, you know, the, the, the thought that people are are not going to make purchases unless they have the money runs so contrary to everything we, we think we know about consumers, about American consumers in particular today, that, you know, put it all on credit, buy the house, buy the car. Can anybody afford anything they, they have? You're saying people do want to budget and spend within their means. Is that a generational shift? Is it a misunderstanding?
1: You no, know, I think that's, you know, ever since the downturn in the economy. There, there was the shift to debit. I think there is a little bit of an aversion to credit. You know, I, I don't want to get away from that. There is a little bit of an aversion to credit since that time period because people saw what happened. I mean, our customers, they're not, they're not wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're younger. Average income is $50,000 or so. Younger, as I mentioned. So they are, in many cases, living paycheck to paycheck, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing is we're helping them get from paycheck to paycheck because, I want to buy this jacket for $100, but I don't want to wait six weeks. Mm -hmm. So if I can use Sezzle to make that purchase, well, I'll keep in mind that I have three more $25 payments coming out, Mm -hmm. and I'll just plan for that. That's, I think, where we're helping the customer. So we're not – they're still in some need in terms of having our product and and us financially empowering them. But it's not like people think where people – are going to outspend it and just walk away. Right, right. At least with our product. That's not the case.
0: So meanwhile, you have some new uh, new avenues, new products. Talk a little bit about that. What's What's next for Sezzle?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned, I just touched on the the mission that Paul helped us design, which is financially empowering the next generation. Mm-hmm. So that's been like the North Star for the company since the start. And we think the base product does it. It's giving people purchasing power when they otherwise may not even have access to it but when we started to think about it, we have these typically young customers. We're actually not helping them build their credit scores mm. with uh, the product. And we kind of thought that's a little bit hollow in the end, because if we're not helping them build their credit scores, those that group that has, you know, 50% that have 600 or below and 15% that have no file, they're going to remain the same after using our product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just talking throughout the company, I have a little baby boy, but if I had an 18-year-old son, I'd be trying to get him a credit card. I'd be co-signing with him so that he could build his credit score. And what I always tell people is, if I think that way about my own kid, why won't we do that for our customer? That's what we should be doing. And so that's when we started to think about how to evolve the product and differentiate. Uh, one of the product extensions that we have recently launched, we're really proud of, is something called Cezzle Up, which is an upgrade path to a credit-building product, it's it's essentially the same product. It's four payments, interest-free, no fees. You know, All of it's the same. Customer now sees their limit. It was hidden to them before. It was like a shadow limit behind the scenes. They can now see their limit. And now they're drawing against their limit as they use our product. And we're reporting their payments back into the system and helping them build their credit scores with it. Hmm. So that's what I'm really proud of, yeah. that, that we've reached the launch.
0: What energizes you in all of this? Are, now that you're kind of beyond, I mean, you, you've, you've built a product, you've found something that works, you're kind of beyond that initial startup phase. Now you're running a, a large and growing company. Is that as much fun to you as starting?
1: Probably not, quite frankly. <laughs> I, love, I love the starting side of business. I just love that challenge. But I still enjoy it. Like I, I, There are still tons of challenges because we're not done yet. I want to win. That I, I just like that's just like in my personal DNA. And At passport we did it. We we went from last to first in that sector. And that's really enjoyable winning, <laughs> you know. So so we're we're still we're still in last place, in my opinion, in this payment space. You know, even though we're having the success that you're seeing uh, especially locally in Minneapolis on the grand scheme thing, I, I just mentioned a firm that's one of our competitors. Right. They IPO'd and they're uh, well now twenty five to thirty billion dollar company. And I know we can beat them. Really? We just have to keep on marching forward and keep on innovating and listening to our stakeholders. And if we keep on innovating, we will beat them. I'm sure of it. And that's one of our competitors. And that's that's the goal. I mean, that's what drives me is I want to win. I want us to be the pinnacle product in the space. And then after we beat the near-term competitors, I want us to go after PayPal. Wow. Like that, that's how I want us to think as a company and how I want us to believe is continue to push forward and keep, keep on going for being the best.
0: Well, it, it's good to have lofty goals and we are definitely along for the ride. Charlie, thank you for, for sharing your story with us. It's a great one.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Fun footnote to Charlie's story. He hasn't minded working from home this past year because he and his wife had their first baby in October. It's a boy. And his name?
1: Cash. Uh,
0: (laughs) I love it.
1: (laughs) We weren't trying to make that kind of a fun with payments, but we just like the name. Mm
0: Well, Sezel is on the leading edge of a big industry trend. You're reading lately about a firm which just went public after pay, which Charlie mentioned, along with Cezil, of course, and some other competitors. It's all about this buy now pay later concept. Why is it resonating with consumers? Well, to find out, let's go back to the classroom. Kim Sovel is the participating adjunct instructor of marketing at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, and I'm so glad to have her with us today to help us understand why does Buy Now, Pay Later appeal especially to younger consumers?
2: Well, Allison, I'm happy to discuss this today. (laughs) Thank you for having me here. Um, Well, what we're seeing, especially in the last year and the consumer behavior changes because of the pandemic, we're seeing debit card uses up credit card use is down, although card use in general is up because online shopping is up. So, um, and I I also think the pandemic um, caused a lot of consumers to shy away from debt when economic circumstances are uncertain. Mm -hmm. So some consumers were really limited as to how much they could borrow. Some consumers don't have credit cards at all. So these buy now, pay later platforms Really bode well and resonate well with these particular audiences.
0: Are they actually buying more than they would with credit?
2: Well, that is some of the concern, and there have been a couple of studies out there that have asked consumers, um, you know, do they spend more? And nearly half the consumers said they spend anywhere from ten to forty percent more when they use buy now, pay later um, compared to credit cards.
0: So interesting, and it it seems so counterintuitive in a way. I mean, is it just young people trying to be different than their parents? They're going to do it with these reverse layaway programs as opposed to credit.
2: You know, it might be a little bit of that, but what I think about it, and so millennials and Gen Zers are reacting very differently um, to buy now, pay later. Both of them, these are what I'm considering these younger consumers you're referring to. Both of them are using buy now, pay later. Um, but Gen Zers tend to use more credit card debt than buy now, pay later. Hmm. Millennials are typically very concerned about um, being deeply in debt, and that is part of them growing up during the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So those spending habits were really impacted by the recession. Plus, a greater percentage of millennials have college debt um, compared to Gen Zers.
0: With with so many more purchases happening online, particularly in this last year, are the, the rate of e-commerce purchases increasing? Is use of Buy Now, Pay Later growing with it?
2: Absolutely. We are seeing huge growth in Buy Now, Pay Later. Um, in the Gen Z market, the growth was um, 220% year over year between uh, last year and the year before in the use of Buy Now, Pay Later. Um, It grew 86% with millennials uh, in comparison of 2020 with 2019. So we're seeing huge um, changes. And I think it's partly because it is something new. It is something new that allows um, individuals to uh, get that immediate satisfaction out of a purchase, but not go into debt. Um, To be Mm -hmm. able to pay for something completely in four payments or six payments or however it's set up, depending on which by now. pay later platform you're discussing.
0: Any cautionary notes, any concerns as we see this explode relatively quickly?
2: I think the largest concern to me would be to kind of warn people, one, read the small print um, because I think they're gonna start um, uh, uh, charging individuals that missed payments. So far it's been Mm. pretty lenient and pretty interesting how these platforms have handled missed payments, but I think that's going to change um, I also um, think people need to be aware that it does entice maybe buying more uh, than you would certainly with cash, but even with credit cards.
0: Hmm. Okay. Good things to think about. Well, thank you for the insights, Kim Savol. We so appreciate your expertise. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about our show, go to tcbmag.com slash means. That's where you'll find All the past episodes, all of the Back to the Classroom segments, it's all there and we hope you dive in and listen to them all. Thanks for listening to By All Means. takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Venita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.